Hi, Jan. Rachel, how's it going? Good. How are you? Great. I'm so excited that we're here for Yes and No, our third episode, and we're going to be talking to somebody we both know, are familiar with. I know, but it's been a really long time since we've spoken with her. She did her master's level. Oh, no, her dissertation. Yeah, some I can't of graduate remember. work. Yeah. Where we were at the time. So, yeah. yeah. Not All to right. be any other confidentiality or anything like that, but um, <laughs> yeah, Angelina Castaño. I know. Okay. So she um, is at the Northern Arizona University mm-hmm. and she is um, spent time as a professor in ethnic studies. Um, she's been, she knows a lot about policy, educational policy and leadership, and we are going to talk to her today about her work as the Director of Institute Native Serving Educators, which um, is now larger than what she started with, which is the Diné Institute for Navajo Nation Educators. Okay, so we're so gonna... that's a mouthful. I have just a really simple question. Okay. That hopefully doesn't, you know, lower my, your impression of me at all but my question is like you know sometimes people are confused educators are confused do we refer to our um do we refer to our students as american indian do we refer to them as native american do we refer to them as indigenous you know the the tide seems to have changed a little bit on this i know jim and i i i'll tell you what i'm doing my approach is to use indigenous um for a couple reasons. Number one, because it is the term used in BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color. So I feel like that is the most recent term. Um, It spans all of North and South America, right? Because we wouldn't call Native, we wouldn't call um, Indigenous Mexican communities, we wouldn't call them Native Americans. Well, we might because they're in North America, right? Then you well, must... no, because in Can- Canada, they call them First Nations. Okay. All right. right. So that's why I think Indigenous just spans well, both continents. Um, I, always, I sometimes worry about, you know, terms like Indigenous or Latinx, that the people that I'm using them to, to refer to. To refer to. Right. Don't want that. <laughs> you know, so sometimes it's a little bit it's a little bit dicey because, you know, it's, I guess it really just have to defer to the individuals. Right. And that's the thing, like, I'm going to do the best I can. And if I say the wrong thing, I hope someone's willing to tell me. And if I'm lucky enough to get feedback, then I will show gratitude for that and make a change. But right. There's as much difference within the group as there are amongst groups. So, right. And yeah. so what works for one person may not work for another. And so it's right. just, yeah. Yeah. I just don't want to be the one to try to tell people what they should be called. Right. You know, right. Right. You white person to go around telling yes. people, you know. But I know from looking at the website that she is the director of the Diné Institute for Navajo Nation Educators. And she is also the director of Institute for Native Serving you know, Institute Native Serving Educators, INE. Mm-hmm. So let's let her into our conversation and okay, learn about her program. Let's roll. Thank you for joining us and tell us, just give us a little background about you 
and how your life has led you to this point. And then you can get into your work as the director there. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Um, Gosh, where do I start? Well, so I currently serve as the director of the Institute for Native Serving Educators, which um, houses the Diné Institute, which is a specific program under um, INE, the Institute for Native Serving Educators. Um, I'm also a professor of educational leadership and foundations, and both of those things are here at Northern Arizona University, which is in Flagstaff. Well, we're all over the state of Arizona, but I'm located in Flagstaff. Um, and I've been here at NAU for just over 15 years. I um, came here right out of my PhD program as an assistant professor um, who was really interested in two different, two related but distinct lines of work. One around um, racism and whiteness and critical race theory, and then another around indigenous education, broadly speaking. Um, so I did what a lot of professors do, I guess, for the first, you know, eight to 10 years of my time, which was teach a lot of classes and do research and write and build relationships across different communities. Um, and in 2016, I was part of a meeting at NAU where some teachers from the Kayenta Unified School District, which is kind of in the heart of the Navajo Nation, came to NAU and talked about um, this vision, this idea that they had for a professional development institute that was um, related to what's called the Yale National Initiative, which is a teacher professional development program out of Yale. And teachers from the Navajo Nation had been attending this national PD program since 2011. Um, and it was time, in their minds, it was time to start something locally. So the idea with YNI is that teachers go out to New Haven, they participate, they grow their capacity, they write curriculum units, but they're also um, being sort of positioned to partner with a local university to start a local program that follows the same PD model. So the teachers from Navajo came to NAU um, and said, we want to start a program here and will NAU partner with us? And um, I, it was sort of serendipitous that I was at this meeting, um, but I was just so compelled by them. They were so passionate in what they were doing. They were so committed to the idea that this was the sort of professional development and capacity building that they and their colleagues needed for their communities. Um, and they were really clear about what they wanted, right? Um, and that it was to be teacher-led and it was to be deeply culturally responsive, grounded in Diné language, culture, history, epistemologies. Um, so they weren't coming to the university um, in a sort of, you know, in sort of traditional ways where like the university is like positioned on top, right? As like the knowledge holder, but rather coming to say, will you join us? Like, we want to do this thing. Will you join us on our terms um, with our vision? And fortunately, um, we had leadership in the Office of Native American Initiatives at the time who was like, yes, yes, we'll join you. And um, so I got brought in to be the planning director. I worked with a group of teachers um, for about a year and a half to build this local institute. You know, everything from like, what would the name be um, to what would our sort of guiding principles be? What would, the, what would the schedule be? How would we recruit teachers, right? All of those things that when you're just getting something off the ground, you have both the big vision pieces, but also the logistical pieces. Um, and then we had our first cohort of teachers in the program in 2018, um, and we've grown ever since. So we had nine teachers that first year, 2018, and we just wrapped up our admissions for 2022, and we have about 58 teachers in the program this year in our fifth cohort. Yeah. It's that is amazing. Really yeah. Yeah. So. So the mission and vision yeah. is what to like create um, teachers who can um, put culturally sustaining practices in place or, I mean, what is the, the mission and vision? Yeah, so the purpose of the Institute is to partner with schools on and bordering the Navajo Nation 
to grow the capacity of teachers to write and engage and deliver culturally responsive curriculum. Um, that's the short answer. What goes into that is capacity development um, around content knowledge. So we're really focused on um, growing teachers' content knowledge in a particular area. So teachers select what they wanna focus on for the year. So they might be in a seminar specifically on math and the, and the math seminar, and these are real examples, but the, might, the math seminar might be on patterns, relations, and functions. So for the whole eight months that they're in our program, there's a math professor who's leading a cohort of teachers focused on patterns, relations, and functions. So they're growing their own content knowledge but in, not but, and um, in ways that are culturally responsive. And so we want teachers to be thinking about rigorous cur curriculum that is also um, meaningful and relevant to students' communities, to the histories of land, to the histories of their families, to the epistemologies in their communities, um, and to their local indigenous language. So while they're growing content knowledge, the sort of end product is that each teacher writes a curriculum unit, um, not for the whole year or anything, but for a few weeks on a particular topic related to their seminar um, content. And they do research on that topic. They write up what they've learned in a sort of research paper format, but then they also write up, how am I going to engage my students in learning about this about this um, topic. What are, you know, I have to align to standards, um, but how am I going to engage them in ways that make sense for who my students are, the communities from which they come. Um, and then we publish those units. So they're all available online, free to anyone with internet access, uh, because that's part of the capacity building too, that is really important to the teachers because it's not just about their own individual professional growth or their own sets of students, but rather their community and, and really the nation, the Diné nation, um, to have resources available to teachers to do this work um, wherever, in San Juan School District or in Cayenta yeah. School District. Yeah. That's I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it does. It does very much. Yeah. Thank you. No, I love yeah. because it's doing both. You know, I it, it made me quickly think of um, Gloria Latson Billings, dream, dream makers, the dream keepers, dream keepers. Yeah. keepers thank you. Yeah. And how, you know, these teachers that she highlighted support kids to navigate the system successfully while allowing mm -hmm. them to maintain their racial and ethnic identities. And in mm -hmm. doing so, thus changing the system at the same time in, in right. um, small ways. So it sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we, talk a lot about how our work is both and not either or, right? So it's about both being academically rigorous, rigorous and culturally responsive. It's about both aligning to state and state content and grade level standards and the Diné cultural standards. Um, it's about both um, growing students' capacities so that they can be successful in higher and higher levels of education if they want, and centering and honoring and sustaining their languages and cultures. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. I have so many questions. <laughs> I'm just like going <laughs> to shotgun questions at you. One, one question I have so sorry again, you, you started really fast and I take notes because that's how I listen, but then I yeah. sometimes miss things. Um, so you started with nine teachers. You now have 58 teachers in the program. These are current teachers in the classroom. They already have a certification or some of them are going through an alternative route to licensing as well. These are all full-time certified teachers in kindergarten through 12th grade in public BIE or tribally controlled schools on or bordering the Navajo Nation. So those are our program. That's our criteria for admission. You have to, you can't be in your first year as a teacher. Um, okay. And that's solely because as you both well know, um, your very first year teaching <laughs> is already so much, right? Yeah. This, this is a big commitment um, to be in this professional development program. So we don't want to 
overwhelm first year teachers. Yeah. Um, but you have to be fully certified, a full time teacher, so not an administrator, um, not a school counselor, mm -hmm. um, a classroom teacher in any grade level, any content area, um, and on or bordering the Diné Nation. Okay. And it's professional so, development. So it's not a degree program. So these folks aren't working towards a master's. Oh, okay. um, it's professional development hours, which in the state of Arizona, they can use those hours towards recertification um, with the Department of Ed. I'm not sure how it works in Utah or New Mexico because most of our teachers come from Arizona. Um, and to one of your first points, Rachel, I think that's largely just because our biggest recruitment is word of mouth. And this started with teachers in Chinle, Cayenta, Ganado, and Window Rock. And so, you know, I think they tend to know people in mo mostly in those areas yeah. and just haven't quite gotten to like San Juan, um, for example. Um, but we'd love to have them join us. <laughs> okay, so it really is just the Navajo Nation broadly, not geographically, like this reservation versus this reservation. Well, it's the Navajo Nation. So the Navajo Nation spans Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. So it cuts okay. across state borders. So it's any school that's either on the Navajo Nation or so Flagstaff, for example, is not on the nation, but we are a border town. Okay. Um, so teachers in Flagstaff, because we have high population of Navajo students, are eligible for the program. But okay. for example, if we had a teacher from the San Carlos Apache Nation, which is a few hours southeast of us in Flagstaff, this program would not be for them. But we have another program that would be. Uh, but the Diné Institute oh, wow. specifically was um, its mission and vision and sort of founding was to support education on the Diné Nation. So it's specific to that. Okay. Yeah. So how do they keep you in check? You said, you know, when, when the educators came to you and said, do you want to be part of this with us? Like, this is our plan. Do you want to support us in this need? You know, there's lots of examples out there of when the institution wants to connect with the community and because of all sorts of reasons tends to, you know, derail them and plow over them. So yeah. What is the checks and balances to make sure that the program, especially as it grows, as it's doing, really sticks to the vision that these originating educators had? Yeah. So one, a sort of um, central principle of our work is teacher leadership. Um, and so the short answer is that. So, and how do we sort of um, actualize that or like what does that mean in practice um, we have a teacher leadership team that um, teachers can apply to be on each year they can renew their um, membership in that teachers are compensated um, so that's really important because we often ask teachers to do things for free yeah. um, teachers get a stipend when they finish our program teachers on the teacher leadership team get an additional stipend um, because it's really important that we value teachers as professionals yeah. um, and as experts and as knowledge holders. And, you know, money is not the only or the most important way to do that, but it is one way. Um, yeah. So I that's didn't quite answer your question, but I wanted to make that point. Um, so, so teacher leadership is sort of central to our work. So we um, put that into practice by having a teacher leadership team um, and they make all of the decisions about the program. So although I'm the director, I am constantly in touch. I mean, I have them on my text messages. <laughs> um, we Zoom meeting very regularly. So for example, with admissions to the program, they I collect all of the applications, but they go straight to the teacher leadership team. They go through those applications. They decide um, if folks meet the criteria, if they should be admitted, if they're admitted, which seminar they should be in. The teacher leadership team makes the program schedule. The teacher leadership team develops the guiding principles of the Institute. Um, I think of my role as more of as a facilitator to like get stuff done. Because again, teachers are so busy that, that 
the way I think about this is they are there to make key program decisions and sort of visioning um, work. And then I and the folks that I work with at the university operationalize that and put that into practice. Um, and it's cyclical, right? So like they might make some decisions and then we'll put it into practice, but then we'll come back together and say, what do we need to change next time? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so a sort of cycle of continuous improvement. Um, another piece to this is really positioning the teacher leaders um, as experts in all things. So for example, we don't often think of teachers and especially in rural communities and indigenous communities um, as folks who analyze data. Our teacher leaders look at data about the program. We put that in their hands and we say, what does this mean? What do you think is important here? What does this tell us about how we should change things or what we should sustain or what we should you know, evolve? Um, rather than me as the director doing that work of sort of not, you know, making meaning of data. That's another, just one other example of mm -hmm. like what it means to really center teacher leadership. Um, yeah. And then we also, and this isn't teacher leadership, but we have a university advisory council as well. So we have the teacher leadership team, and then we have a university advisory council made up of faculty and administrators from the university. But we're really clear with them that the teacher leadership team is primary and they are secondary, but that's another check because they know that that's core to who we are. It's another check for me as director, right? If I also have this university advisory council raising questions and saying, well, did you consider bringing the teachers into this conversation or did you consider this? Um, so that it's, it's collaborative in multiple ways. Um, hopefully always deferring to the teachers though. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. What kind of data do you um, have them look at? I mean, is that something that you generate or is that something that they also decide, you know, this is what's valuable to look at? Because I know, you know, in my work with schools, sometimes standardized test scores are not something that teachers really care to look at. And so, you know, is it a mix of quantitative and qualitative? Yeah, so oh, there's a lot I could say to this. Um, so one thing is we don't look at student outcome data. Um, and that is large. That's a, there's a number of reasons for that. But one is that it's pretty um, questionable to directly link a professional development experience to student outcome data because there are multiple factors, right, that um, inform student outcome data. So we don't even go down that path, if you will. Um, the kinds of data that we're talking about is mostly more program evaluation data. So we do surveys with the teachers um, mid-program year and end of program year, which has both Likert scale questions that we can analyze quantitatively and open-ended questions that we can look at in more narrative or qualitative ways. Um, we also try, although, um, in full transparency with the pandemic these past few years, this has been really challenging. Um, but we tried to do some interviews with teachers. Our plan was to do some classroom observations with teachers, but we haven't been able to do those. Um, and this all comes out of a grant we have from the National Science Foundation. So when we first got started with the Dinah Institute, we had no money. Um, and we had to think about, you know, how are we going to fund this? Um, and the, we have school districts that um, we invoice for some of the costs. We have some really generous donors um, and philanthropic support, but we've also reached out to certain grant um, entities. So for example, the National Science Foundation, we got a grant about three years ago, um, and it pays for some of the program costs, but it also pays for data collection and for some research efforts on the impact um, on teachers. And so we have a pretty robust plan for what data we want to collect, but we've had to pare it down in the pandemic. Um, but moving forward, we hope to do more. It includes like teacher portfolios. So the curriculum units are one form of data. We consider that data because we can look at those and um, 
analyze them against the principles of culturally responsive schooling to say to what extent are teachers um, engaging these principles in these curriculum units. And we have a rubric that we've developed to do that. Um, but moving forward, we'd like a more robust portfolio that's not just their curriculum unit, but that also includes some student work, some specific lesson plans, some assessment plans that they've used um, within the teaching of that unit. But we haven't done that quite yet. Thank you. Have you gotten any pushback for being the director as I'm assuming, I, and I don't know, are you a white woman? Like, how do you identify racially? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I mean, I've always thought that, but now I'm like, oh, well maybe yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, no, I identify as white. Um, I have not gotten any pushback from the teachers or from school district leaders. When I first started in this role, there were very minimal, but there were some conversations at the university level um, about that. Um, and I have always been very transparent um, with the folks that hired me and with the folks that I report to at the university that I want to step aside when the time comes that there is another person that should be doing this job. Um, I hope that time will come sooner rather than later, not because I don't love my work, sure. but because I think it's important to cultivate um, leaders at that level as well. Um, so there has not been pushback. I would say most of the hesitance, hesitancy and caution has been from myself, um, mm. always being just very cognizant of um, the history of colonizing and assimilatory schooling and indigenous yeah. communities and the role of white people and um, whiteness in those histories. Um, and so wanting to just be very mindful and intentional about perceptions, um, about my own leveraging of, you know, authority and control and power in ways um, that can be harmful um, and can perpetuate, you know, patterns of inequity. Um, but I've, yeah, I've sort of like, but it, this has been a bit cyclical for me in the sense that when I was doing my master's research, so before um, my doctoral program, I did my master's thesis. It was a qualitative study looking at the experiences of indigenous women in predominantly white universities. And rather than pursuing that similar, a similar sort of research topic for my dissertation, I, as you both know, um, looked at whiteness and racism in predominantly white schools. Um, so I completely moved away from indigenous education in my own work in part because, not in part, largely, almost entirely because of my white identity. Um, and over a number of years and having um, really great mentors and friends and collaborators, um, I've sort of come to a different place in my understanding of my role in this work. And I think, I, I think there are important roles for white folks to play, um, particularly in speaking back to institutions, um, in speaking back to policies and policymakers and leaders and um, folks that often also share white identities. Um, so that was a long-winded answer to say <laughs> not much pushback at all. Um, but a lot of self-awareness. Yeah, yeah. 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 Excellent. So Angelina, I'm wondering about like um, the controversies across the country with critical race theory. And is this community particularly immune to that? Because, um, you know, they are Navajo or, it, you know, do they experience some of that? as well in terms of people being maybe a little bit suspicious of what they're learning or if they're teaching critical race theory to their students. I'm just curious about that because we're in the thick of it here in Utah, so. Yeah, so, so we do not frame our work in the Dine Institute as being about critical race theory. theory. We frame it as being about culturally responsive schooling. Um, and specifically, there are a lot of, um, there's a, 
a robust body of literature and research on culturally responsive, culturally relevant, culturally sustaining, culturally revitalizing pedagogies um, across diverse communities. And we really ground our work in um, the scholarship and the research that's been done in and with indigenous communities, because there are some really important, unique contexts. Um, namely being that native nations are sovereign nations with a government to government relationship with the federal government. Um, they have treaty rights around self-determination, around self-education, around um, education, broadly speaking. So we frame our work in those terms, you know, mm -hmm. about being about sovereignty, about self-determination, about nation building, about cultural responsiveness. Um, it's not about critical race theory. Um, for myself, who someone who identifies as a critical race theorist, um, I know that there are multiple synergies between critical race theory and the work that we do. There are multiple points of resonance. Um, but it's been what's been interesting for me is that the teachers that we work with um, from the Navajo Nation, it is very rare for me to hear them describe their work as being about critical race theory. They talk about it as being about language and culture. They talk about it as being about sovereignty, self-determination, nation building. Um, I don't know if I've ever heard them frame their work as about critical race theory. I'm sure there are some that do, right? But in my experience thus far. So those specific debates have not really um, informed or um, created barriers in the work that we've done. Um, yeah. <laughs> Including like the institutional hierarchy so Northern Arizona University, people haven't come to you worried that that is part of the intended outcome? Um, no, again, and I think it, it may be because that's not, what our, that's not what our work is about. Our work is about partnering with native nations. Um, our work is about centering teacher leadership around culturally responsive practices and contributing to nation building. Um, now, for example, I would say that part of critical race theory is understanding that racism is systemic um, and pervasive across US society. That's a fundamental principle of critical race theory, right? In our work in the Diné Institute, culturally responsive schooling principles would tell us that racism and assimilation and colonization are pervasive across US societies. So that's what I mean when I say there are definitely points of resonance and synergies, but we're not, we don't use the language of critical race theory in mm -hmm. this particular work, because, in part because this stemmed from the teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was, for the teacher leaders that started this work and that continue to sustain this work, I don't know that critical race theory is something that resonates for them. Um, what resonates for them is culture, language, yeah. self-determination, nation building. So that's, that's what our work is about. That's so good to hear. I'm so glad because it sounds like such an amazing program and to have to have that conversation that isn't relevant to your work. It's, it, I'm just glad that you all haven't had to be distracted by that. Yeah. Are the leaders of the Navajo Nation involved at all? For example, like it's my understanding the Navajo Nation has actually created some set of standards mm -hmm. for their language and culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I know your your focus, the content piece is on like the core standards of Arizona, but how has the, the leaders of the Navajo Nation been involved if they have and how are those um, standards that they've created been incorporated? Yeah, so the Navajo Nation um, has um, what is roughly equivalent to an SEA, a state educational agency. It's called mm -hmm. the Department of Diné Education, or DODE, D-O-D-E, um, is the acronym that folks use. 
And it's an entity of the Navajo Nation's Office of the President. So President Nez was the president of the mm-hmm. Diné Nation. Um, there are multiple committees that are part of his um, Office of the President. And then the Department of Diné Education is a core sort of entity that has jurisdiction for K-12 education across the Navajo Nation. Now it's very complicated because on the Navajo Nation, there are public school districts that report to the states in which they ha- they they are. So for example, San Juan School District reports to the Utah Department of Education. Cayenta right. School District reports to the Arizona Department of Education. However, they're also um, legally bound to engage in tribal consultation with the Department of Diné Education. So that's the public school piece. And then the, there are Bureau of Indian Education Schools, which are federally um, owned and operated and funded, that also have to engage in tribal consultation. And then there are tribally controlled schools, which report directly to the Department of Diné Education. So that's a, that, that is a long way of saying the K-12 educational context on the Navajo Nation is complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are multiple jurisdictions and lines of authority and reporting. Um, but the, in terms of our program, the Department of Diné Education, we require that every curriculum unit is aligned to their standards. And you're, as you said, Rachel, they have developed um, their own set of standards for Diné history, Diné government, Diné character standards, Diné culture, and Diné language. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are meant to sit alongside the state standards. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, again, a both and. Um, our unit, our curriculum units have to align to both state standards and the Department of Diné Education standards. They also provide some funding for our program through the Department of Diné Education. And then at the level of the president, President Nez and First Lady Nez um, have been really incredible um, advocates for this program. So they came and they were keynote speakers at an event we had in December. Mm-hmm. Um, they often, you know, mention the program, um, talk about it as a really important um, example of self-determination through self-education. So I feel like there's a lot of really great support and advocacy um, from the leadership, you know, at that level. Um, of the Navajo Nation. Awesome. I'm really impressed with the um, advocacy, the empowerment of the folks that started this, who were able to say, like, this is what we want, this is what we need, will you partner with us? I wonder how how this gets replicated. I mean, I mean, perhaps it doesn't need to be replicated exactly like this, but you know, there there needs to be, I think, more opportunities for teachers of color to be able to uh, have professional learning that um, is supportive of their culture and supportive of um, you know has a, there's a safe space uh, yeah. being that you know there's cultural similarity among the participants and so um, I just wonder how I so many communities out there just I don't know that you know how how do they know that this is even a possibility how do they yeah appreciate such a thing they just walk yeah. up to the university door you know a lot of people won't do that yeah. we struggle to get our you know parents of color in our schools you know just because it's a scary place and they don't necessarily understand all of the ins and outs of of the institution so I'm just curious how did that even happen in the first place and and then how do we encourage other communities to kind of do something similar yeah in, this, in a similar way yeah I don't know that I have an answer to that, but I, ha- I guess I have a couple thoughts um, that we could consider. One is that um, NAU has a, um, in, it, in our strategic goal, we have a specific goal around serving indigenous communities. Um, and it, it's evolved a little bit, the, the language of the goal, but it used to be um, that we will be the nation's leading university serving native communities. Um, So that gives you a sense of like the institutional commitment to this kind of work at the university level. And I do think that makes a difference um, to have very explicit 
language um, and explicit leadership. So we have a vice president for Native American initiatives at NAU, which is you know a very high level leader that reports directly to the president, sits on the president's cabinet. Um, it's a full-time appointment. Um, so that that demonstrates something, right, about an institution's commitment to this kind of work. So that's one thing um, that I think has been important. Um, oh, I just forgot the other. Oh, the other piece in terms of thinking about like, I think you use the word replicating. Um, so one of the things, and, and we're sort of, we're growing. So through the Institute for Native Serving Educators, um, we started with the Diné Institute, but then we, we developed the D Institute for Native Serving Educators so that we could partner with additional Native nations to do similar work. So in that way to quote unquote replicate it. Um, and part of what we're trying to do through those efforts is center some core principles. So for example, teacher leadership is a core principle that in any new partnership that I talk to folks about or that I have conversations with other communities about, that is always front and center around how do we position teachers as leaders? Um, which teachers can we reach out to and can we have a conversation about? Because they have to be involved from the get-go. Um, another core principle is around cultural responsiveness. Um, so, you know, we have some non-negotiables, if you will, right, um, in this work. And I think just reminding ourselves of those and, um, and reminding ourselves of the why, like why this is really about nation building. This is really about capacity building. Um, this isn't about the university getting more grant funding. This isn't about the university getting more recognition, right? This is about what are the needs that indigenous communities are identifying and how can we leverage the resources we have to partner with them and to meet those needs. Um, and this is all specific to indigenous communities, but, but you mentioned Jim, you know, teachers of color more broadly. Um, I will say that teachers don't have to be indigenous to be in our program. They just have to be working in indigenous serving schools. So we have teachers from diverse um, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, but I can envision a similar sort of initiative around, for example, serving Latinx communities or serving African-American communities. Um, there would have to be some differences, right? But I think that there is room and possibility for that kind of work. Um, if folks have the will um, to make it happen. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and I was gonna, I, I just was like, wait, I don't even, I'm not clear on whether or not your, the teachers involved are indigenous or not. So you clarified mm. my question without even asking. Yeah. Um, right, cause it wouldn't, I mean, until we can change the makeup of teachers, who are predominantly white, middle-class, English-speaking, it, it, it behooves the community to get them on board with culturally responsive teaching. So yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, um, I will I, say, sorry, just yeah. real quick. I will say though that um, over 85% of the teachers in the Diné Institute are Diné. Um, and Navajo Nation is unique in the sense that, especially at the elementary level, but also at the middle and high school levels, they have a, um, a high population of Navajo teachers in their schools. Um, and so that has been an incredible asset yeah. to the community in, in the Diné Institute, because again, um, teachers bring important sets of knowledge and important sets of experiences that they share with each other. And so um, the teachers who are not Navajo learn so much from, um, by being in community with the teachers who are Navajo in our yeah. program and vice versa. Um, so, but that is a unique context. So we're starting a, a very similar program partnership with the San Carlos Apache um, Nation with the school district that serves that um, community, San Carlos Unified. And even though it's um, on the reservation, the San Carlos Apache reservation and tribal lands, 
most of the teachers there are not Apache themselves. Mm -hmm. So that'll be a, just a different kind of context um, mm -hmm. for that partnership. Uh, and so did that community come to you and ask similar to so, the original group or what, is this more like networking, trying to build, build capacity in other areas? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So we've, we have been talking about the Dine Institute with various partners and stakeholders since we started. Um, and so through those conversations, uh, folks would express, hey, I'm really interested in something similar. So specifically for San Carlos Apache, the tribal education director um, has re in the, about two years ago reached out and said, we need something like this for our community. And then the pandemic sort of halted things, but she put us in touch with the superintendent of the public school district that serves their community. Um, so that one started with, a, with leaders and administrators, but from, I think it was probably our second or third meeting, we said, we've got to get a teacher leadership team put together. Um, and so since that time, the vast majority of the meetings have been the teacher leadership team, not with the superintendent's um, cabinet. So a little bit different in terms of its origins, but but still community driven in the sense that we we share information out. There are 22 tribal nations in Arizona alone. Wow. Um, and so, you know, we've been sharing information about our work with Navajo. And then we've had other communities, Fort Mojave, San Carlos Apache, White Mountain Apache, um, express some interest. And so then we try to cultivate those relationships. Um, and see what we can make happen. All right. So if people want to learn more about this program, is it best just to go to the NAU website or do you does your program have its own website? We just want to put links in the notes. Yeah, we have our own website. It's on the NAU website, but it's just www.nau.edu backslash D-I-N-E for Dine. Okay. Um, so that's for the Dine Institute. If they want information on our other programs as the Institute for Native Serving Educators, that's www.nau.edu backslash I-N-E, okay. Institute for Native Serving Educators. So okay. I-N-E and D-I-N-E, they're very similar. <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, so we have a website for both of those. Awesome. So we'll include those in the link. Um, if you, would you be willing to share thinking back to your younger self, <laughs> what initially moved you to really look at the way, you know, our American school systems are supporting or not indigenous communities either back then, or as you said, you've come around, you know, in a circuitous way back to it. Mm -hmm. Do you, are you comfortable sharing whatever experience or yeah. thing drew you to this work? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was a single experience or a single thing. I think it um, was sort of a collected, a collection of things, some of which include, um, I think my own upbringing. So although I'm white, um, I grew up a girl in a very patriarchal society. I grew up um, pretty working class in, you know, societies that really value middle classness. Um, I attended Catholic schools, so I always felt like social class was sort of a thing um, because I knew that I didn't have the kind of money that most of my classmates had. So um, and then my family, I mean, I think I also sort of grew up with some sense of fairness and um, I didn't use the language of justice when I was young, but some sense of like justice and fairness. And then as I moved on through school, um, taking like sociology and anthropology and political science kinds of classes that sort of just helped me better understand systems. So I, I sort of think of myself as a person who thinks about systems and policies, um, including whiteness as a system, right? And racism as a system and colonization as a system. Um, so as I came into understanding these things more and more, um, I just was more and more 
angry about it right? <laughs> um, and just um, upset about it and also angry at my schooling experiences that did not teach me about any of this until I was an mm-hmm. adult um, and being really, really bothered by that. Um, and so just that quest for like, you know, understanding more and more and then um, collaborating and partnering with folks who had different experiences than myself and brought different lenses to work, I think also really pushed me in important ways in terms of my own thinking. And um, my work around Indigenous education really took off when I started collaborating with um, a good friend and mentor, Brian Brayboy, who I still work a lot with, who's at Arizona State University. And um, so that was really critical to that work. And you know how things work, they just sort of move from there. Um, Mm -hmm. And you build relationships and you build connections um, with people and communities that, that just make sense. So, you know, it's sort of over many, many years, um, I would say, sort of inspired the work. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. I know you're super busy. So I really (laughs) appreciate you fitting us in for segment one. Yeah. <laughs> Segment two. We love, to have you. we love to have you back. I have the price of um, niceness on my yeah. price of nice on my yeah. phone. So I'd love to talk to you about that. So yeah. Yeah. I'm <laughs> always happy to talk about that too. Yeah. <laughs> so. We'll give you we'll give you a month or two to like get back to your your day yeah. jobs. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then we'll circle back and harass you again to join us. But thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. It was great. It was very informative. Angelina, nice to see you again. Awesome.